Two-Minute Time Lord Podcast 239 is dedicated to my friend Jeff, co-host of the Witty and Profane Television Zombies Podcast. He's been going through some health issues lately, and I just wanted to let you know, Jeff, that I'm pulling for you. 2MTL239 is also dedicated to Tammy Garrison, who complained that nobody gave her a podcast for her birthday. Tammy, I know your birthday's in November, but this podcast is for you. We are back for a time dilation episode of the Two Minute Time Lord podcast. It's been a while since I've done one of these. When I throw the rule book out, we hang out for a little bit longer than two minutes, and I only allow myself to do that when I've got some friends along. That's right, it's our second Series 6 All-Star Writers recap of the season, and to do this, I'm bringing back a veteran from the force, Mr. Kyle Anderson. Kyle, how you doing? I'm doing wonderful. How are you, Chip? I'm great. Uh, Kyle, of course, I met at Galley and brought him along, along with Teresa and Frank for the previous round. Kyle, tell me a little bit about what you are up to in the writing universe these days. Oh, I've been keeping myself plenty busy with all these uh, Doctor Who-related reviews that I've been writing um, for Nerdist.com. Um, also been writing various uh, film essays for Battleship Pretension, and uh, I just started a podcast, which... You can listen to if you want. I, uh, now, there's a selling point. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've, I've got a podcast, maybe. Yeah. Uh, no, what, it's there. It's just... <laughs> what's it called, and where do we find it's, it? Um, it's called uh, WTF Are You Watching? And it's a, it's a weekly podcast I do with my best friend where we watch a bad movie on Netflix, Instant Watch, and then we make fun of it uh, for 45 minutes. And uh, you can find that at wtfareyouwatching.tumblr.com or in iTunes as well. All right. Now, unfortunately, Teresa and Frank both had conflicts that prevented me from getting the band back together. But I got some quintessentially able replacements. Uh, and first up is a contributor to Chickstick Time Lords. Whedonista's co-editor, and somebody who's also co-editing another book that seems to be in the uh, Chicks Dig Time Lords vein. It's Deb Stanish. Hey, Chip. How are you? I'm doing epic. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing just fine. Thank you for having me. I'm going to try to do Teresa Proud as she is off at Geek Girl Con this weekend, um, and she's actually hosting one of our Whedonista panels, so we're really excited for that. I omitted another couple of writing credits uh, to your name. What's some other stuff that you've been doing in the Doctor Who world? Well, um, I have essays that recently came out in Time Unincorporated Volumes 1 and 2, which are Mad Norwegian Press uh, volumes, and I'm a regular contributor to the Enlightenment fanzine for the, uh, the Doctor Who group up in Canada, um, even though I don't live in Canada, but it, they're a great group of people, and um, that's a lot of fun to do every month or every few months, um, and it really keeps your toes in the water. And last but not least, once upon a time before on this show, I had a Hugo Award winner, except it was a co-Hugo Award winner, and it was because I was on a gang press conference call with Russell T. Davies. But now I'm in an actual conversation with a Hugo Award winner, still co-winner. It's Lynn Thomas, the co-editor of the Magnificent and repeatedly flogged on this podcast, Chicks Dig Time Lords. Hello, Lynn. Hi, Chip. How are you? I'm great, and I'm so happy to have you all here. Lynn's also uh, co-edited Chicks Dig Comics and Whedonistas. If there's an, something else that she has co-edited, I'm not aware of it, but she is also now the editor of the very prestigious Apex Magazine. What's that all about, Lynn? Well, um, Apex Magazine is a professional online venue for uh, science fiction, fantasy, and horror literature, very specifically dark SF fantasy and horror. So the stuff that you are freaked out when you write it because it's really sort of out there for your personal stuff, that's what we want to see at Apex. I'm taking over uh, from Catherine Valenti as the editor. Her last issue just came out, and my first issue will be coming out next month. And in your day job, you archive science fiction authors, which is, uh, this just sounds like the most fantastic job in the world, taking science fiction authors and putting, putting them in, you know, these morgue-like mm -hmm. slab things like they had at the bottom of Torchwood's Hub, and think, or, or is it their work? It's their work. Oh. I, I, I try to refrain from actually, um, you know, 
archiving their bodies because, frankly, the preservation issues are just enormous. And you have a podcast, too. I do. Um, I'm the moderator and um, semi-presenter of the SF Squeecast, in which I forced Catherine Valenti, Elizabeth Baer, Seanan McGuire, and Paul Cornell to be positive about something for an hour. Paul Cornell being forced to be positive about something? I can scarce I know, imagine that. I know. It's, 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 it's astonishing when he does it. And now we're going to talk about the thing that we all came here to talk about, which is Doctor Who Series 6, Part the Second. So this was a very, very strange season as Doctor Who goes. Uh, I'm not aware, and those of you with the more classic series memories might correct me on this, but I'm not aware of a series that was actually split in the middle of the year like this one. First of all, am I right? Is this the first time this sort of thing has happened? And more to the point, did it work for Doctor Who this year? Uh, let's start with Kyle. Well, um, I'm fairly certain it was was the only time. I will have to check my notes, <laughs> my extensive notes on 50 years. Your spreadsheet. Um, I, right. Um, I, I'm fairly certain um, that it, it was the, the only split season in Doctor Who history. And it's a strange season because as a whole, I think if you look at the 13 episodes, I don't think it works all that well. But if you're just looking at individual half seasons, I think they uh, hang together quite nicely. I mean, granted, I haven't sat and watched all 13 in a row yet, but... Um, the first half really seems to hang together and the second half really seems to hang together, but they don't seem to coexist um, all that much in my brain anyway. Uh, Lynn, Deb, what do you think? And uh, what did you think about uh, having to spend the summer without any Doctor Who? You know, when it, when they first announced this, you know, I had a little bit of a temper tantrum moment. You know, why are they doing this? And and, and I really want my Who all in one big clump. Um but actually, I rather enjoyed the split because it, for me, it's such an intense show. I think trying to process 13 episodes at one time, um, it, it can almost be a little bit of sensory overload. Um, I kind of agree with Kyle that it seemed like two completely different seasons at times that were both individually very well done. I think the second part was much, much better than the first part. But looking back at it now, I'm kind of happy at how it played out, and it kind of gave us a summer to really digest those first six episodes and um, get try to get a sense of, it, you know, that excitement was building again. So I I think it really worked. I think I think it worked pretty well. Um, I do agree that the first half of the series and the second half of the series they they hang together nicely as individual bits. I sort of think of them as each side of a of, do you remember cassette tapes? Um, so it's sort of side one <laughs> of the cassette and side two of the cassette. It does make a whole album, but I think it's more effective as a single side of a cassette than as a whole album, um, a CD for those of you who who remember such things. And um, I have to say, I didn't mind. Um, I'm I'm sort of used to sort of uh, short seasons in other television, particularly if you watch like H HBO or Showtime shows where they'll break it up a little bit. Um, and there's a lot of British television that has short series anyway. And I, I tend to go, come down on the side of, I would rather see a short series of very good episodes than a long series with a lot of mediocre in it. And that's just a personal preference. Um, the one drawback I see is that during the break, when we sat down to watch Let's Kill Hitler, I needed to sort of re-engage my brain and remember what had happened. That was really the difficulty, was just that there was enough of a break, and we hadn't taken the time to go back and rewatch the episodes like the good little fans were supposed to be. And there wasn't uh, a whole lot of recapping done, at right. least not, not a right. lot of hand-holding. No, there wasn't a lot of hand-holding. But on the bright side, because the episodes, particularly in the second half of the series, hold together and hold up individually so well, I don't think it was actually that much of a problem. And in a way, for the episode that worked the least well for me, it gave me plenty of time to forget the Curse of the Black Spot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Poor Curse of the Black Spot. Uh, Nobody loves the Curse of the Black mm. Spot. Well, because there's there's a wasted potential there. <laughs> it's a poorly made episode. That's why people don't like it. Well, I'm sure that it is someone's favorite episode because every episode is someone's favorite episode. Not and I don't want to, you know, I don't. I challenge is, you to find that person. You know, I think they go to Chicago TARDIS. There is someone who loves the twin <laughs> dilemma. It's not me, but there is someone out there. Every episode is someone's favorite episode. And I don't want to harsh their squee, but, you know, it just didn't work for me. Right. Moving on to a controversial subject. Uh, Matt Smith, genius or genius? Genius. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, I, I would go with uh, Genius Genius. Genius Squared? On a stick. With a side of awesome <laughs> sauce. 
<laughs> Dipped in chocolate. Okay. Yes, please. Okay, let's 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 squee about let's squee about Matt Smith for a bit before we start ask before we start actually disagreeing with each other. How has he changed over the last two years? How is Matt Smith of Series Six point five or point two or whatever different from the guy who asked for an apple um, in the eleventh hour? I think he's more well. Clearly, he's more experienced as an actor because he's had two years of playing the role under his belt, and so he's got all of this uh, background to draw upon. Um, one of the things that I've noticed more and more as we've gone along that I really, really love about Matt Smith as the Doctor is his rapport with children. That's something that has come out more and more in these episodes, where um, you know we have this running theme of the Doctor being unable to resist helping out when he hears a child cry, but when you see Matt on screen with interacting with kids in any way, he is just fantastic because he's able to project that image of of safety and danger at the same time. It's the, we're going to go on an adventure, but it'll be all right, don't you worry. And I, I think that that's just brilliant, that, that he's got that rapport with kids, both on screen and off, which is something I deeply appreciate because, you know, my daughter loves him. I think that he, he's really kind of grown into the role in, in that he can embrace the age essence that he needs to have to portray the doctor. But at the same time, I mean, really having this kind of youthful mannerisms about him, but he, he plays a very old soul. And I think that's an extremely difficult um, undertaking. And I, I honestly, I, I wish I could pin down how he does it or, or exactly what he brings to that to, to be able to convey that to the audience. But I just look at him and I just marvel in that I can look at him and see every doctor in the past. I can see the age upon him. I can see the weight of those years. Um, while he does walk like a drunken giraffe and bumps into things and is utterly ridiculous. He's just, he's charming, charming. Especially in uh, closing time, I don't know if it was makeup artist or Steve Hughes's direction or what, but he looked e- almost emaciated in some of those shots. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, he he, he has this weird innate ability to to be um, alternately um, spry and youthful, and then immediately become the wise, learned man. Which it didn't take him very long to become that. Like. You know, basically by the second half of series five, that's who he was. And and now in series six, he is the doctor like he's not he's not an actor in my eyes. He's not really an actor trying to be the doctor. He just is the doctor. He lives in that character like he you know, he walks around in it like it's an old pair of shoes that fit comfortably. Like he just he embodies everything that is doctorish and he can he can, like Deb was saying, absolutely embody the the young uh, goofy awkward teenager guy as well as being um 50,000 years old essentially. Yeah, I'm I'm a confirmed uh David Tennant fan. Uh the 10th Doctor is my doctor. And it's it's kind of weird watching still still holding that allegiance uh and uh, watching a Tennant episode is like slipping into a pair of comfortable shoes or something. But still recognizing how good Matt Smith is and how much he's transformed the role a breath of fresh air for people who didn't care for Tennant. I think he really carried it to the next level. I mean, there was so much su- suppressed anger, I think, in the 10th Doctor and suppressed rage. I mean, he came off as kind of goofy and light at times, but there was something, I always felt that the 10th Doctor was much, much darker than even the 9th Doctor. He he played it a little bit better and, and hit it a little bit better. And even with, I think, Matt Smith, I mean, there's just a different sense that you don't have that simmering rage. It's more of an acceptance, and, and you can be, you can feel those those years and even that guilt still kind of always in the presence. Um, it just, you know, I adore David Tennant, and I love the Tenth Doctor. He's still a very favorite Doctor in our house as well. Um, but Matt Smith just seems to have elevated that to the next level, and I think it's it's not so much a change as it's it's a um, I could say regeneration, but that would be a bit of a cliche, but it's more of an evolving sort of character. I'd agree. Well, let's talk about some of the story tropes that have been cropping up so much, uh, especially this year, maybe last year as well. And that's the theme of family that we alluded to a little bit when we were talking about Matt Smith's ability to relate to children. Parenting has been an incredibly and surprisingly big part of series six, uh, especially this this last half of it uh, with uh, closing time, with night terrors, and I'm really interested. Uh, some of you are parents, some of you are not. Uh, I'm interested in what you thought that this series had to say about 
parenthood and uh, families and why it was such a big deal this time around. Well, I, I just developed a theory. Now, I'm just making this up as I go along, so bear with me. But one of the reasons I think that the second half of this series has focused on parenting with the story of the week in terms of night terrors, in terms of closing time, um, is because there's an aspect of parenting that is studiously being ignored in the second half of the series, um, which is the whole deal with, um, with Amy and Rory not being able to actually parent Melody as a child. Um, and I, and I, and I wonder if that's an intentional way of sort of demonstrating the lack there. Um, I could be wrong. I mean, but I think that, that, you know, part of this is, well, Stephen Moffat is a parent. This is something that as a storytelling thread is going to have resonance for him in a way that perhaps for Russell T. Davis, who isn't a parent, it didn't have as much resonance. He's, you know, he has parents clearly, and mm-hmm. as we all do, but the, the kinds of fears that Moffat tends to prefer when he's trying to scare the bejesus out of all of us tend to be sort of the mundane sorts of things. It tends to be, you know, a, a really scary crack in your wall. It's, a, it's, it's the toys that look wrong in the dark and they look like they're going to attack you. It's not being able to do anything to help your kid. These are all very, very typical rational fears in that parent-child relationship. Um, and I think that that's something that's just of more of interest to Moffat than it than it may have been to RTD. Russell tended to deal more with sort of adult parent parental relationships. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you've heard me go on about my perceived my, my I joke about Russell's issues with with you know mothers, but um, I think that it's interesting that Moffat does focus on parenting in terms of having having kids that are actually minors as opposed to adult kids, um, which is something we hadn't seen quite as much. The relationship uh, going down the generations as opposed yeah, to up exactly. the generations in the previous. Uh, Precisely. Precisely. Hmm. That's, that's, it's a theory. It's, it's, I, I, it, feel free to knock it about and, and kick the stuffing out of it. It's a good one. Uh, any kickers? I don't know that I'd, I'd like to kick that because I think, you know, subliminally there could be a whole, there is a whole issue of parenting and lack of parenting. But I think something that you also see a lot in, in the Moffat trope is, um, you know, the families that you make uh, rather than the families that you have. And and having lost children fighting monsters has, has kind of been his thing since he was writing back in season one. I mean, you had, you know, Jamie and Nancy and the empty child and, you know, all the way through Cal and, and fighting, you know, the Vashtanarada. You know, I think it's interesting that, you know, if you compare that, that child in jeopardy and fighting the monsters, I mean, you look at Amelia Pond in 11th hour and she's praying to Santa Claus to come and save her because that's, that's the deity that she can see, that there's a concrete thing. You know, I, I, I say something and I get a present on Christmas morning. And, you know, I have to wonder whether, you know, we're creating this new trope of, you know, there's a generation of little children who are going to be saying, oh, the doctor can come and save me because he's the one that always fights the monsters. He fights the monsters under the bed. Um, where I think when you looked at the Russell Davies heirs, there there really weren't that child in jeopardy situations other than the Moffat story that, you know, we talked about the empty child. Um, and even in school reunion that was based on children, you had children who were used as, as weapons or snacks. I mean, they weren't central to the story. It was really not a story about the children in danger. It was a story of, you know, saving the world from the crillotane. Um, but I think that's as Lynn was saying, because he's a parent, he's very attuned into what is what is going to resonate with children, I think, and having the scary thing under the bed or having the scary thing in the closet and having somebody there who was going to protect you. It's almost, it's almost a fatherly sort of role that the doctor's playing. He is coming and slaying the monsters. So I think it's an interesting dichotomy that so many of these stories are a father-child story as opposed to a mother-child story because it, it's it's essentially it's Moffat's story. You know, I'm a dad, and I'm going to take care of everything for you. Mm-hmm. Um, Kyle, did did the fi- family stuff work for you as a non-parent? It, I mean, it worked within the confines of the story. It's just interesting how every time that there is a, a parent-child relationship brought up during both halves of the series, that it's been father-son and not any other combination thereof. Especially considering there's with the, the with, with, the, the, with aim- the big exception of uh, River Song, but we'll get to that. Well, this is. A, Right. This is exactly what I was about to say is that um, Amy doesn't really get a chance to to do anything um, with Melody beyond holding what she believes is her baby in her arms and then having it dissolve. And then she she doesn't get to raise the child other than hanging out with her as 
a child as well. And so you never actually get to see their relationship until the very, very end, which is even, you know, when they have wine together in the garden. But um, that's a that's an adult child relationship. Um, or at that point, River is older than her mother. Uh, but every other time that it's been shown, it's been a father son. It's, it was father son in um, uh, Curse of the Black Spot. It's father son a little bit in um, the Gang or Two Parter, and then in Night Terrors and Closing Time. And I that absolutely what, what Deb was saying. It has to be a profit thing or a a fact that all of these writers have been men, maybe dealing with their own uh, insecurities as, with uh, parentage or you know uh, their own fathers or things like that. But it's it's you know strangely absent is a is a mother daughter or even mother son or father daughter relationship mm-hmm. um, um and there's even although there's even less of a connection between Rory and river uh and I wonder why that is it's yeah that's that's an interesting point as well because really the only scene that the two well they have uh an early scene together in uh, one of the first two episodes I forget which one day um, of the moon where they're day of the moon yes where they're just talking um but he doesn't know that that she's uh, his daughter and then there's the scene in a good man goes to war where she knows that she's about to tell him but he doesn't know yet and then really at the end when the family unit is is reunited in the garden again i one would expect him to be like very excited um to see his daughter but really he just runs right to amy so really he doesn't have you know much of a fatherly role at all which is weird again considering all the other fathers that you see throughout and it's never really like touched upon that Rory isn't doing that. It's just kind of a given that he's just kind of Amy's lapdog still a little bit. Hmm. Well, let's throw that out. Let me throw that out uh, to all of you real quick is one of the criticisms and it's been interesting. This season doesn't seem to have been as universally adored by the uh, Doctor Who folks who hang out on Twitter um, as the previous one, maybe. Some people loved it more, but I, I haven't seen sort of unanimity on it. But one of the frequent criticisms I saw was uh, that the looking for their daughter, bonding with their daughter thing just didn't happen. And I'm uh, wondering uh, whether you guys felt it got short shrift or did they do the best they could given the limitations of the format? All right, I'll take that one on because this has been a big pet peeve of mine as well. Um, there has been a lot of criticism that, and and as much as I've kind of railed a little bit about some of the gender issues um, throughout season six, I had absolutely no problem with that. Um, as someone who has actually given birth to children, um, you think about this, Amy was probably in her head pregnant for all of about a week before she had a baby because she was not aware when she was taken by um, Madame Kevorkian and, and put in the box. Um, she didn't realize that she was all that time she was gestating. So she has that moment where she's telling the doctor, I think I'm pregnant. I think I might be pregnant. And then you have her immediately giving birth. And then, you know, a day later, two days later, giving up this baby. Um, and I can tell you when you, when you first, and, and my experience is not universal, but it, it's fairly common. When you first find out you're, when you are having a baby and you're pregnant, it takes a while for that to sink in. Um, it's, it's kind of like this wonderful amazing thing that's happening but it's not necessarily sort of a real thing for a while you know those early days it's it's really kind of an idea more than a real thing so I really didn't have a problem with her not having that you know fire that you know we need to find the baby we need to find the baby um because in, in, especially in my mind, she wasn't really pregnant all that long, and and she may not have had time to feel that that connection that um, you would if you were actively and emotionally engaged in a pregnancy for nine or ten months. Um, so, you know, as, as, even though I'm rambling a bit here, I, I think that the people that kind of um, were going off about how she was emotionally disconnected from this were thinking of her. She had actually been engaged in a pregnancy for the entire time of her gestation. See, I, I, Deb, I, I have to respectfully disagree. Um, fight, fight, fight. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> well, and well, I disagree I'm, very well a lot. Yes, yes, we do. We're, we're very cordial about it. Um, see, okay, I, I agree that, you know, Amy did not have the full gestational experience. I mean, she had, she had if you'll excuse the pun, Chip, a time dilation pregnancy um, Ooh, in reverse. nice. Thank you. <laughs> I, I'm here all week. Um, but... I still think that 
there are aspects of pregnancy that Amy did experience that would affect how she handles it. Um, even if she's only pregnant for a week, she gets the massive rush of hormones. She gets the massive body changes quite quickly. Um, the fact that her pregnancy experienced as brief as it was, was as traumatic as it was because she's, you know, she's basically confined in a room and, and, you know, heavily sedated coming in and out of it and, and being given all kinds of wacky drugs and, and having a fairly traumatic personal experience in a very general sense. Um, that I think is where I find it rings a little bit hollow. Um, because I think that even if the pregnancy itself did not affect Amy, I think the experience of going through that time dilation pregnancy and losing the baby and and the captivity and being separate separate from Rory for so long, um, I think all of that would have affected her a bit more. And I, 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 I now I, I I have had occasional issues with how Amy is written in terms of of I, I hope for more emotional depth than I personally perceive there to be. Um, and I think that this is, this is one of those cases where I just, I wanted a little bit more, just a little bit more acknowledgement that, wow, what Amy just went through kind of blew and that might've had an effect on her. And she's not just going to sort of wander along and go, well, you know, it's okay. Now, of course, in the very last episode, when she puts the eye patch back on Madame Kevorky and you, you actually see all of the rage, but what I didn't see was the simmering of the rage over those episodes before she got her hands on the person who put her through this. Um, and that, I think, is is where I found it a little bit disappointing. It's almost sort of a check-the-box moment, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Kyle, what do you think? Well, I mean, uh, you know, I am A, a male, and B, not a parent, so I, I have no idea how any of this works. But um, it, from a purely storytelling When a boy and a girl... <laughs> oh, never mind, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> when a boy and a girl enter the TARDIS. Anyway. Uh, and they're both beds. That's how it works, right? Um, Only if you're dressed as a centurion. Uh, oh, okay. Check. Um... <laughs> Uh, I, I think that she she handled it amazingly well under the circumstances. In in a good man goes to war, she's she's wrecked. Like she she has no idea what's going on. She's angry, and then when it when her baby dissolves because it's made of ganger juice, um, it you know she's she's you know very very vehemently angry about it. And then she finds out that River is her daughter, and she kind of goes, oh okay. And then when she finds out that Mel's is River, and they have spent their entire childhoods together. She kind of goes, Oh, again. And, and it really, she doesn't have a time at that point to, you know, reflect on it. I suppose she does, but we don't see it. But, um, she, she's like, she, in a sense did, did raise her child, even though, um, she herself was a child and didn't know about it. So, I mean, she, I'm sure there's like a, a, a fact that she has missed that opportunity, which she talks about in the, in the finale. Um, but she at least knows that the, the child was safe and that she knows, she ends up a good person and things like that. So that's got to take some something into account in her brain. So she, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm gets a, over it. Yeah, I'm I'm a, I'm a mixed feelings about this whole thing because I, I think if there's one thing that uh, Stephen Moffat and Russell T Davies uh, both uh, did really well with their versions of the show is that they also recognize that if the show looks too deeply into something, you see all of the contradictions start to pile up. And I wonder if they had really gone in as deep as they might have in terms of, uh, you know, angst and drama over Rory and Amy missing Riversong, would it have actually worked over the course of, well, six episodes after the pregnancy reveal? There can only be one last of the Time Lords. And thank just, goodness for that. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's only so much, you know, angst that, that I think the viewers want to deal with. But um, I, I think Amy, too, I mean, have to give her credit. She's been kicking around the TARDIS long enough to know that, you know, things have to play out the way things have to play out. Um, and again, as Kyle said, knowing that, that River is grown up and that she is awesome, I mean, how much... How much can you go back and change those events? Um, well, except I, for that whole period where she was the the sociopathic assassin. You know, that wasn't so good. But that was so much fun. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. River being a sociopathic killer with, with poison lip gloss was real 
really cool. It was really but cool. As a parent, you're going to kind of feel like you failed a little there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm still going with the theory that I'm giving the girl a pass because she was only pregnant for three days, you know, and it, it probably just all seemed like a really bad dream at that point. <laughs> um, I want to move this a little further down the line of uh, how deeply you can look at the stories. I'm, I'm not saying that the stories are dumb by any stretch. It's just that, well, we're moving into phase two, time travel. And obviously, Moffat loves his wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey plots. And I'm almost as tired of hearing the phrase wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey as I am of the inevitable comparisons that we all, myself included, still make comparing Stephen Moffat's shows to Russell T. Davies. At some, at some point, I, I, I swear we'll all be capable of just looking at Moffat's shows in isolation without looking at the previous ones, but that's a side rant. Um, the whole series has relied on fixed time versus fluid time, linear fate, the idea that a perpetually time-traveling character would suddenly be thought of by the universe as at large as dead. Moffat is widely credited for bringing time travel to a show about time travel. Is there such a thing as too much? Do we need to go back to Doctor Who using time travel as more of a simple excuse to change a setting? One of the things I think is interesting about the way that Moffat uses time travel is that um, one of the issues I had with Series 5 um, in particular was that he was using time travel um, in, a, in a very specific way so so often to undo things that had been done that I found it very difficult to to engage emotionally with things that were happening in the plot and in the story and in the characters. So it got to the point where like the sixth or seventh time that Rory died, it's like, ho-hum, time can be rewritten, let's move on. Um, and, you know, we started joining into the familial outcry of, oh my God, you killed Rory, you bastards, you know, because it it became this running joke. Um, it, it, it becomes difficult to take it seriously. That being said, I think in this in series six, um, they've done a better job of balancing that urge to keep messing with the timeline in really complicated ways to prove that we can cleverly do so um, with telling stories that have emotional impact. I think that balance is a little bit stronger, especially in the second half of this series. And um, I have to say, you know, having just seen sort of the last three, the last four episodes and, you know, sort of all clumped together because we had to play catch up. The second half of series six was really damn strong. I mean, just really, really good episodes. And I was really, really happy about that because it was after having to wait through that space, it was it was great to have that payoff be as as wonderful as as it was. And can I just like shout out to Gareth, Gareth Roberts and Toby Whithouse? I want them to write Doctor Who episodes forever. <laughs> I mean, I love I love Moffat's work, but I cackle when I watch Gareth Roberts episodes i'm just laughing out loud with glee because he he captures the the madman that goes with the box in a way that is really really wonderful and toby just tells a great story and has really wonderful characters um and i just i just loved them to pieces and it just made me so happy i'll never forgive him for uh introducing me to the perfect companion and them writing her out well there is that yes ah time travel deb kyle I think if you're gonna if you're gonna do it as much as they have been doing it, be consistent. And by and large, I'd say it has been consistent. However, they keep saying time can be rewritten, time can be rewritten, things like that. Um, unless it's a fixed uh, point in time. Unless it's a fixed point, which I, I liked. I like the way that they they went into what happens if you try to change a fixed point. To this point, it's just been like, well, this is fixed. You can't do anything about it because of the story that I'm telling. Um, whereas this one you can change because it doesn't matter, you know, things like that, where is now you find out what happens if you do change a fixed point in time. Granted, it really kind of falls apart at the end of the episode when you find out what happens. But I like that idea where changing a fixed point in time or trying to change it will literally unravel time. Whereas you look at something like, um, uh, the big bang where it's, con it's a constant causal loop going in and out and in and out. Nothing can change in that loop even though it's not necessarily a fixed point because this happens because this happens, you know, thing one happened because thing 10 happened and thing five happened because, you know, things like that have to keep going. And so I, I like that aspect of the time travel thing, but if you can just change time willy nilly, um, it kind of, it kind of loses its impact 
um, and it loses its loses the interestingness of it, which isn't a word, but. <laughs> Yeah, I, I kind of agree. You know, I, I look back at this and I think of Amy. You know, how many timelines is she playing with in her head at this point? I mean, she's had so many right. different alternate versions of a childhood. You know, if she doesn't go insane at some point, it would be a miracle. Um, you know, I think I, I kind of got to the point. I enjoy, definitely enjoyed the time travel aspect in the in the, in series six more so than series five. Um, and I just kind of got to a point where I decided that I wasn't going to analyze it too hard because. Uh, I had a group of friends that we watched Torchwood with, you know, when it first came on, and and I adore Torchwood se- season one. Uh, I think Lynn and I may be the two only people who yes. do. We are uh, it. I'm raising We're my it. hand. I'm raising my <laughs> hand. Kyle's the odd man out. I'm sure. But we we used to have what yeah. we call the, the the sushi theory in that you know sushi's it's beautiful, it tastes wonderful, but you really don't want to think about it too hard because it might turn you off of the thing. Um, and, you know, I kind of got, there was a couple times I, you know, we called each other up and said, you know, this is a sushi episode. Um, you know, it, it was wonderful, but let's, let's try not to analyze it a little bit too hard because it's just going to take our enjoyment away. But it's, you know, it's a show about time travel. I really like to see some time travel. I like to see playing with that aspect of it. And I'm willing to forgive it a little bit more because it's trying to be so daring and it is trying to be so bold. Um, I think it got a little ground down in series five and I think it redeemed itself in series six. I think the story with, you know, the fixed points and playing with that time and repercussions of that and what you can go back and do um, really worked a little bit better this time around. And you got to see how, how things, the consequences of time, like in the girl who waited, you got to see the consequences of what would happen if the doctor doesn't save somebody, you see that they, you know, are waiting for 40 years. And, you know, in that, in that instance, they can go back and rewrite things because there's so many different timelines within that, that room or that building. Um, you know, the impact on time itself isn't there. So, and that's what I think is really interesting about what they're doing this season or what they did this season is that they're, they're showing you different sides of time travel besides just, you know, going from point A to point B in different points in time, you're actually seeing the consequences of, of your actions and, you know, the ability, uh, to change them for the better and not just, um, in order to make a, a grouchy guy, not so grouchy. But you're also seeing some of the, the really painful results of those decisions too, which I think is something absolutely, that, yeah. you know, not just seeing Rory die again, but, you know, you're seeing that what happens when you don't come back and, and you know, especially with the girl who waited is another one. And, um, you know, there's been some really painful choices and painful decisions that have been made this season that we, that kind of um, transcended the camp that we got in series five. And the doctor didn't always exactly acquit himself honorably in all of those decisions. Uh, Kyle, you and I had a, um argument on Twitter, a friendly argument, <laughs> over friendly. Uh, over the girl who waited, I, as, if I recall correctly. Yes, we did. Um, your position, if I'm not mistaken, was that the Amy in the other timeline, the older Amy, uh, is as much a real human being as the young Amy, even if they both can't exist at the same time. And mine was that in order to have one, you can't have the other one. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Was that right? Is that about something? Yeah, about? pretty pretty much. Yeah, um, I thought older Amy had just as much aim, a- agency as younger Amy, and I was irritated with the doctor, and I was irritated with sort of the structure of the script that would. Um, I mean, and again, if you get too deep into it, you bog yourself down into uh, too much philosophizing. But I felt like they were killing off a person, not a uh, time anomaly in that episode. Well, that's – I mean that's that's the the triumph of the episode is that you do feel like it is a person. And these are the, these are the um, choices that the doctor has to make every day. And normally Rory shouldn't have to do these choices. And that's why he gets so angry about it. And that's why the doctor ultimately lets them leave in the next episode. Um, he doesn't like having to make them make those choices even though – you know, the Rory uh, chastises him and tells him that, you know, he's like trying to make him him. Um, but you can't I mean, that's that is the point of the episode. However, in order for young Amy to have gone back with them, you know, they are getting the chance to rewrite history for the better of everyone, um, you know, everyone involved anyway, except for old Amy, who isn't really a person. You're right about thinking about it too hard. Um, <laughs> sushi. Yeah. <laughs> this is totally a sushi episode. Touche. Um, 
But, you know, I thought right. it was also, an, it was an interesting, if you th- take the dichotomy of the girl who waited with, say, something like turn left, you know, I really enjoyed that Amy wasn't willing just to, you know, step into the street and be hit by a car. Um, she had fought really hard for those 30 years. Uh, and, you know, I have to wonder whether if it was a, you know, a, a, a Davies era, uh, era episode, you know, if, if she would have, you know, oh, go ahead, Rory, you know, with the sentimentality of it all, uh, had played differently, um, where this Amy was, was very angry, and, and I felt she did have agency, she felt she had agency, and she certainly wasn't willing to make that sacrifice. Um, so it, it's it's interesting when you look at those two episodes and you have a you have a companion who is just willingly you know going off and ending her existence for the greater good um, to one who's saying I'm not so sure about this. Yeah, if it had been an RTD episode, I think uh, it would have ended like the Doctor's Daughter with uh, you know the rules of time travel can be rewritten. But from writer to from writer, from script to script, Doctor Who is loose enough with that. I think uh, old Amy could have uh, flown off into the sunset, mm-hmm. never to be seen again, unless it's uh, time for a stunt casting moment. Right, but in the confines of that story, she couldn't have. And that, that's the that's the point that I think I was trying to make is that she, you know, she can't she can't be there if she never was there to begin with. If that makes any sense, like, and that's that's the dilemma of time travel. See, and Boom. from 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 this point of view, I just keep thinking, poor Rory, and and it's kind of a dick move for the doctor to try to make him choose. Oh, totally a dick move. You know, just cause poor Rory. This is the woman he loves and the woman he wanted to grow old with, and he has the choice of either growing old with this person who he's missed thirty years of, or choosing to kill the woman he loves to grow old with the younger version. It's horrible. Although he forces Rory to quote make a decision close quote after he's pulled the one Amy in and locked the door on the other. Yes, yes, but he still puts Rory through that emotional turmoil rather than just saying I'm sorry, Rory, but we can't do it this way because he doesn't tell Rory the truth. You know, rule one: the doctor lies. He doesn't tell Rory, we have to take the younger one, the, the, the 40-year-old Amy can't exist in this reality, this, the TARDIS can't sustain them both. He lies. He says, no, 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 we can do it. We can, we can sustain both of them somehow, never mind Blinovich limitation effect. Um, so, you know, it just, to put Rory through that when the doctor knows it's not possible, I think it's kind of cruel. And it's very cruel. You know something? I, I'm going to have to revise my estimation of that episode upward a fair bit because as angry as it made me, um, you can have some fantastic arguments over it. And that's a, that's a decent sign for a script, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. Well, and how brilliant was it when when Rory called him on everything that that every viewer has ever said? Like, why didn't you just check? And he says, well, I don't do that. And it's like, but why? Why don't you? I mean, how often, as a viewer, if you watch an episode, said, but you know, if you'd only opened the door and peeked out first, you know, maybe none of this would have happened. Um, I, I thought that line was just, it, it, that to me really made the episode. That and the, and the ending, the very, very abrupt ending, um, just was pitch perfect. It was pitch perfect. Mm-hmm. There was Ex- no sentimentality there at all. Unless mm-hmm. you're watching on BBC America, where the abrupt ending all, all suddenly crashes to uh, big full screen credits and tiny little window with, uh, but uh, that's a that's it's a Graham Norton all over again. It's a first world problem here. Uh, <laughs> let's move on to uh, the third big thing that I wanted to ask you guys about, and then uh, I'll open it up t- to uh, to all three of you to take over. There were hopes in some circles that the Moffat era would mean the end of romance in the TARDIS. Yeah, right. <laughs> Welcome to Series 6. And uh, and the payoff that essentially, uh, they're still playing coy about a couple of little things, but essentially River Song is exactly who she appeared to be in Silence in the Library, the Doctor's lover. Let's talk about River Song as a plot device and as a character and um, as a recurring actress on the show. Um, How did River Song work? And are we, again, as some people said we did with Rose Tyler, getting really too deeply into this romance in the TARDIS uh, subplot? Well, what I think is great about it, I mean, whether you want it to happen or not, obviously... There it is. It's on there now. What I think is really great about River as a character is that she she's the only one who can who can get the doctor in that way because she's not asking him to settle down. She doesn't even really want to travel with him all the time because, you know, it's so out of order. She's just like, when we meet, 
uh, I will make out with you and then you can go. Like it's just, it's like because um, he, he clearly has no real deep connection other than just, you know, he likes River and he likes to flirt with her. And if they kiss once in a while, he's OK with that, too. Uh, so she's kind of the perfect woman for him in a weird way, as long as the perfect woman who isn't isn't the TARDIS because um, she's not asking anything from him. She's just basically, you know, he, he can't settle down, man. And she's totally fine with that. Um, <laughs> this which, is such a, this is such a Stephen Moffat way of looking at the doctor, isn't it? She's a 51st century booty call. <laughs> basically. And she's okay with that, which is weird. I mean, she wants to marry him. She loves him. Uh, he can't reciprocate that. And she doesn't really want him to, or, or require it of him. Um, which is totally a Stephen Moffat device. Like that's how he would do it because he wrote coupling. <laughs> he's, he's very laddish, very laddish in his writing. And, and that's, yeah, and, and, and that has turned the doctor into a bloke. Has it? Uh, he, that's what Amy accused him of in the value added material on the series five disc set. But I hear reservations. <sighs> I, I'm so conflicted over Riven because River because I adore her as a as a thought and as a character and I was absolutely infuriated at the end of Farce of That Science and Library where she essentially became the angel in the in the house um, where she's and I know people have argued with me but the imagery is just you know the flowing white dress and tucking the children into bed after telling them bedtime stories and I'm like that's not the river we were introduced to and I was really excited to see how he was going to redeem that character from her fate almost um, and, and to get her to that grand adventure estate. And we were doing so well until we had her at, at the university become an archaeologist so she could meet a good man. Um, and and I really kind of uh, you know, sent some red flags up for me in that her whole existence. Oh, is God, it's the, the MRS do- degree. Yeah, there you go. She's, you know, she's she's not going and, and becoming an archaeologist because she's really deeply interested in archaeology. She's really interested in being able to get a hold of the doctor when she wants to. And this is her version of, you know, the cell phone. Um, yeah, I just, I, I can't, she's losing agency for me rather than gaining agency as as the series is, is going forward. Because I don't see where her existence has any place to go other than just being wrapped up in the doctor. Um, we're not seeing those grand adventures that were kind of hinted at back in series four. Um, as, as her character is developing, it's almost, she's almost becoming the 51st century booty call. And she's willing to wait in that storm cage day in and day out in the hopes that he might drop by on occasion at night and get up to who knows what scrabble, I guess. Um, but well, that depends on if Jack's visiting too. <laughs> He's the one who secretes the hormones that uh, that Craig accused the doctor of, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I like that theory. Please don't ever no. say Captain Jack and secrete in the same sentence. <laughs> <laughs> okay, see, here's, here's the thing. I actually, I, I have to disagree with Kyle because I, I do think that River is a booty call, but in the fullest sense of the word. I don't think that they're just snogging. Now, maybe that's just me. Well, I'm, and I'm, I'm just certain that it happens it. off screen because this is a family yeah. show. Um, but, you know, I actually think that the doctor has pretty deep feelings for River. Um, I, I don't think that he thinks of her as a, a convenient pet or anything like that. You know, I, I think that he actually does have feelings for her. I think that... The interpretation of the doctor that Matt Smith has chosen and that Moffat has essentially, you know, given a benediction to is that, yes, he has these feelings, but he's utterly rubbish with women in the same way that Stephen Moffat will proclaim loudly that he is utterly rubbish with women. After all, he wrote coupling. Um, (laughs) So I think that's the tagline for our show. After all, he wrote coupling. coupling. Yeah. And I think that that's a lot of it is just that there's this notion that. The doctor likes people, but he's terrible at it. Yeah, he's well, he's lost I mean, his whole... softness. That yeah. ten, the, the tenth doctor. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think that you know there, there's there's a minor fan theory that that certain regenerations are the reproductive regenerations, and we think that perhaps the tenth doctor's incarnation was one of the re- the reproductive regenerations in the sense that he was able to sort of have some ease with with the gender of his choice when he was feeling frisky in a way that Matt Smith's incarnation just can't manage. That sounds like that came from Life Journal. <laughs> <laughs> 
Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm well, sorry. I'm, I'm not known to spend any time on live journal, Chip. <laughs> uh, we will, uh, bailiff. Would you please strike that from the records? I, I, I but no, I, I, I kid, I kid. But uh, it is definitely a very different way of the character relating to potential romantic partners. We haven't seen him. Um, we didn't see the tenth Doctor play with play with Jack very much, uh, for example. Um, but uh, I are we well, are, to be, to be fair? Ahead. The doctor has had other romantic partners. Let us not forget the second Romana. I mean, the, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. Tom Baker's doctor and Romana too, uh, as played by Lala Ward, they were decidedly a couple. They are running through the streets of Paris holding hands in City of Death. This is this is something that is. You know, and to be fair, they're both time lords. They are equals. This is not a matter of the doctor deciding that he has a thing for a human. Um, they're not human. They're aliens, and they're a couple. But um, I think that that being said, I don't think that the doctor necessarily waits 500 years to have some company. I'm just saying. Yeah. How much more can be done with uh, the River Song subplot? Because I don't think that the character is going away anytime soon. Um, they've 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 still dropped some hints, but uh, Deb sounds skeptical that you you sound like it's pretty much running its course, right, Deb? I I just I'm not quite sure what they're going to do with her to make her her own person, not just the woman the doctor marries or the woman who tried to kill the doctor. Um, you know, she gave up all of her regenerations for the doctor. She went to university for the doctor. She's in jail for the doctor. She sends out intergalactic SOSs for the doctor. I, I'm not quite seeing what River is doing for River yet, and I'd like to. Um, I'm just not confident that we're going to. Um, I don't think... I don't think Moffat writes women particularly well. I think he's um, he seems bemused a bit by some of their stories. Um, I, I think he's done a much better job this season with giving Amy some resonance, uh, which I didn't feel that she really had the first or series five. Um, but he's done a much better job in in giving Rory an arc than he has with with Amy as the primary companion. So I'm I'm not particularly confident that. Um, we're going to see a redemption of, of rivers, anything other than sort of the footnote to the doctor's story. I hope I'm wrong. I really am because she, she is amazing and she's one of my most favorite characters. And in my head, she is much more amazing than she is on screen. Maybe we'll get lucky and there'll be a spinoff with her and Madame Vastra sur- uh, solving mysteries together. Oh, we could only Oh hope. my God. <laughs> Kyle, what do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, yes, essentially all of her mystique is gone, which is unfortunate. And I really hope, I mean, short of having her be the permanent companion next season, which I doubt is going to happen. Um, I, I don't really know how much more there is to say with that other than just he shows up, she's there, or she shows up and he's there and they like each other. And that's about it. Like, um, you know, I, I don't, crime. and they fight crime. I don't see how, you know. I don't see how there's going to be how they're actually going to further the storyline. There are plenty of ways they can, um, but I don't think it's going to happen in the confines of the way Doctor Who is being told. Um, I, you know, if unless they give maybe they should give Alex Kingston a spinoff series, which I would watch. But yeah, I, I mean, it's it's the Doctor show. Um, and these obviously she's a person who is an important part of his life now or whether he likes it or not, I guess. Um, but but yeah, she's. She is defined by the doctor, which is, you know, completely takes away anything autonomous or cool about her, like y'all were saying. Yeah, well, I mean, there are still there are still sizable cool bits about her, uh, complete with the yeah, she's still- uh, zap, zapping silence behind her back stuff, you know. Um, and Alex Kingston is great. Any criticism you have of River Song, I don't think you can apply that to Alex Kingston. I mean, she has. She she is portraying the character exactly as written, and I think she's doing a great job of it. She is amazing. I am I am waiting for the the story from Big Finish fifty years from now, where you know the doctor comes and gets her out of the library, and she just kicks his keister for locking her in there and and not letting her go off and have adventures. Um, 
yeah, uh, it's I, I there's just so much more that I really wanted to see from her because she is such an amazing strong character, and I kind of felt a little let down by the finale. Well, let's open things up a bit. Uh, I've been feeding you topics, but let's just uh, talk about the big topic, which is what did we think of Series 6 and more specifically the last half of it? Uh, Did we like it? What worked? What didn't? Well, I liked it quite a bit. Um, I, I thought that the second half of Series 6 was quite good. I thought the first half of Series 6 was okay, I but I, it was very up and down for me, particularly because you have back-to-back The Curse of the Black Spot and The Doctor's Wife, which is actually my favorite episode of the series. Um, in fact, I think at this point The Doctor's Wife has supplanted The Girl in the Fireplace as my favorite episode of New Who full stop, um, which for me is a big leap because, like you, Chip, I am a David Tennant gal um that being said yes i, I am that, a david you know, tenant gal well <laughs> pray continue sorry um that being said i really really liked the second half of the season i thought that i thought that it had really good momentum i thought the storytelling was good i thought that the character stuff that we got you know, there were a couple of things I've, I, as as we've talked about i had quibbles with in terms of i would have liked to have seen just a little bit more but Beyond that, um, and the disappointment of the introduction of the per- the awesomest possible companion and the loss of her in the same episode, Wit House. Um, you know, beyond that, I I really really liked it. I thought it was quite quite good, um, and it was just that it was it was satisfying. It was you know when we got done watching it, we were just like, yes, that was proper Doctor Who. It was satisfying, and that was really, really nice because I was afraid that it wouldn't be. So it was nice to to have it live up to my expectations. Yeah, I uh, I agree I will... with you. I'm sorry. Why don't you go ahead, Kyle? Oh no, I, well, I was just going to agree. Also, um, we're all that, agreeable. Uh, we're all agreeable. Yeah, I mean, the first half of this uh, of the season I liked, but it was absolutely every other story was good, and the other one, I mean. Um, the opener was great, and then Black Spot, which we've talked about, and then Doctor's Wife was amazing, and then the Ganger two-parter, which is kind of dumb. Like it, you know, other than the ending when it sets up the last story, which you know, take or leave, I guess. Um, but the second half was was just good. Like it was just good stories all the way through. Even Night Terrors, which was the weakest, I, I think we can all hopefully agree on that. But um, but it was still a good story. Like it wasn't, it wasn't offensive in any way. Um, so yeah, I mean, I definitely think that they, they backloaded the season, which is good. Um, considering that, uh, curse of the black spot could have been in the second half or was slotted to be. Um, and then you would have had, um, five, five good stories and one glaringly bad story as opposed to five good stories and one also quite good story. You know, absolutely. I mean, the pacing in the first, part of of the series was just all over the place. I mean, the Rebel Flesh and the Almost People was an interesting story that did not need two episodes to tell. I mean, that by the end of that, you're like, oh, you know, is it over with yet? Um, and and for its purpose, which was merely a setup, I, I you know, I just think it dragged tremendously. I mean, the one thing uh, you know, I have to have to say, I've been so very satisfied with the Moffat finales. Um, as my and I am a huge RTD fangirl. I loved the Ninth Doctor, loved the Tenth Doctor. But you know, you got to the point, uh, you know, with those finales that you, you know, you stocked up on ice cream and Prozac, you know, to get through it because you just knew, you know, not only was your heart going to be ripped out, it was going to be stomped on and then thrown against the wall and then set on fire. Um, you you walk away from series five and series six, and particularly even the Wedding of River Song, which, as nonsensical as as people can really drag it out to be, that. You, you feel like you, you know, kind of want a cigarette afterwards. You, know, you really feel satisfied. You felt like you were, it, you know, you got the money shot there, and 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 it was very, um, it was a very pleasant feeling that you felt that enough was wrapped up, and it, there was maybe a little bit left to speculate on for the next season, but but it was enough. You felt good. You felt good when it was done. Like closing the book after you finished the chapter or whatever. Exactly. You didn't, you know, you didn't want to throw the book against the wall. You just wanted, you could close it and quietly think about it for a little while. Or come on a podcast I, and talk about it. Yay. And what I really liked about both of these, both of these seasons is that they don't, like the, the finale doesn't immediately lead to the Christmas special, like all the RTD ones have. Which, I mean, it's like, yes, 
it does go on from there. Obviously, there will be a Christmas special, but it's it does nicely bookend the series as a whole. It, you know, it has a beginning, it has an end, and it do, it's not obviously in series five they're going off to do something, but that's not what the Christmas special ended up being. So it's it was kind of more just a, a generic we're off to adventure um, as opposed to you know the Titanic crashing through or something like that after you know, a really heartbreaking moment or, you know, anything like that. So for, for that, I think that each season five and six as just one series are completely satisfying autonomous entities. They felt finished when they were over. Yeah, absolutely. They, they, even though there were still questions that needed to be answered, you, you felt like it was done. You were, you were okay with yes. it. And somehow people still are willing to pick up the next book without having been handheld from, from it through a cliffhanger or an elaborate tease. You know, mm-hmm. people people are still coming back for more, so we don't need to have that Titanic crashing through the wall thing. Because after a few months, you might forget about that anyway. I was like, oh yeah, the Titanic thing. You mean, it, it's just there to entice you and go, oh wow, there's something else coming. But ultimately, it's unnecessary because, the, the, you know, it just begins with the Titanic crashing through again anyway. You know, and you have to wonder whether those moments were, you know, supposed to be, you know, a little bit lighthearted so the series didn't end on quite such a downer as <laughs> Doomsday, true. you know, yeah. or, you know, the doctor wrapped in his man pain and dripping wet from the rain. Um, but he's so cute in his man pain. He does man pain very well, but <laughs> do we really need to see the Titanic, you know, life jet or the, yeah, around his neck? Yeah, that's too much. Just too much. Well, let me let's let's wrap this up with one last question then for you all. Um, what next? What do you want to see happen in uh, series seven? Um, are there some boxes that haven't been checked in a in a while that really need checking? Say personally, I'd like to see more closing time sort of episodes. Um, you know, kind of one off little stories, standalones, monster of the week. Um, you know, as much as I, I like the arc and I and I'm a huge fan of arc and backstory, I it's it's kind of time to cleanse the palate a little bit. Um, in my opinion, I'd like to see something that we see the doctor going off and the doctor having adventures, not necessarily um, carrying the arc of his companions, which is something that has been since the series has revised, it's very much been companion-driven in the companion story. Um, it would be interesting to get back to some more traditional Doctor Who where it's the Doctor's story and the companion of the of the week or the companion of the journey is is there to kind of help him along rather than vice versa. One of the things that I'd like to see, and this is completely selfish on my part, um, is a proper historical again. Um, yeah, we're overdue. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, you know, as much as I, I didn't mind Let's Kill Hitler, and there was a part of me that sort of thought it was funny that the episode is called Let's Kill Hitler, and, you know, after the after basically the teaser, Hitler is just shoved in a closet and we forget about him for the entire episode, which I thought was a really good gag, because, you know, what do you do with Hitler in a historical episode? And we've already had a, a, a World War One, you know, Spitfires, World War Two Spitfires in Space episode, and that's all fine. Um, but I would love to see... Um, and, you know, I realize part of this is budget because doing a historical and making it look really good is expensive. It's crazy expensive. Um, but but I the 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 fangirl in me just really, really, really wants to see the doctor meets Jane Austen and there's a dinner party like that. I want that episode just because that would make me personally very, very happy. I think you and Eric Stadnick, too. Um, but uh but yeah, yeah, we're we're way overdue. I I I agree. I totally want an, a, a historical. Uh, Kyle, what do you want from the next season of Doctor Who? I would like. I mean, those are um, good ideas as well. But I I would really like it if we got away from Earthbound storytelling for several episodes at a time. Um, it's kind of, or at least with humans, because uh, uh, you know I watch a lot of the classic series, and there's uh, several. Seasons, season long, where they don't even go to Earth, where it's essentially just on alien planets or ships the entire time. And so it would be kind of cool to just see, um, to get, kind of get back to that, where maybe just have a story or two um, just dealing with alien um, cultures and things like that. Obviously, um, same thing with the historicals, it's going to be, uh, you know, kind of expensive to do, but they can do it right. I mean, they did it on really tiny sound stages in the 60s and 70s, so I, I don't see why they couldn't do it in theory. Um, but that, that's what I, I would kind of like maybe more alien 
alien menaces as opposed to human-based stuff. Well, with sick sick bays in uh, the Curse of the Black Spot, notwithstanding, um, uh, Michael Pickwood... That was still on Earth, though. Yeah, well, yeah, but Michael Pickwood's demonstrated that he can make any episode look fantastic with just two pennies to rub together. Um, so I, I think they could... I think they could do a historical. I think they could do a bunch of sci-fi-only sh- stories. They just have to want it. <laughs> Am I right? Am I right? I think so. I think you're right. Oh, definitely. It re- it really was a good season. Um, a a good story, well told. Um, and very much Moffat's very much Moffat's story. Um, he's he he's taken he, he he's taken his own tack with this show, just like his predecessor has. And it's really hard to imagine it being any different. Uh, and it's definitely hard to imagine anybody else playing the Doctor right now. So, uh, four sets of thumbs up for Series 6, is that it? Absolutely. You'd bet. Me too. Guys, I really did appreciate having you on. Where can, if, if people want to follow you on Twitter or read up your stuff, pick one, pick one thing that you're really proud of right now that you uh, want to remind people that they've forgotten all, your, all the plugs at the beginning of the episode. I, uh, me. Uh, you can follow me, Kyle Anderson, on Twitter, at Functional Nerd, where I'm usually funny, hopefully. I am also on Twitter at Deb Stanish, um, and I am occasionally funny. <laughs> You can you can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm Lynn M. Thomas. I'm I'm rarely funny, but I'm very librarian-y. <laughs> very much, very you much. Give so. You can link. also I, I give good link, and you can also find me on the SF Squeecast monthly. Yeah, uh, and uh, I commend that podcast. And uh, WTF, are you watching? And whatever podcast you're doing in your head, Deb. <laughs> I'll leave the podcasting to you, Chip. Oh. One of us. One of us. <laughs> Everybody's doing it. Listen, thanks so much for uh, being on the Two Minute Time Lord podcast, this time dilation edition. And uh, to my listeners, thank you so much for listening. You can find more episodes at TWOMinuteTimeLord.com, where you can also find links to all that other social media good stuff. And we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye.